For thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mucorasi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Petals Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Petals Denim Wash protect your fades like the royalty they are. Welcome back to Heddle's Blood, everyone. My name is David, and I am the managing editor of Heddle's. I am Reed. I'm a writer at Heddle's. And we're talking about the history of denim. We're, we're stretching this puppy out as long as it'll go. We're on part four here, which uh, I have tentatively titled the 17-year rivet war. But uh, full uh, disclosure, it might be something different by the time you are listening to this. Let's do a quick little recap of where we are in the story of denim. Going back to 1870 San Francisco, as you might remember, is a little thing called the Gold Rush that sent an unprecedented number of people to the West Coast of the U.S. for the first time. And the ones that actually mined and hunted for gold needed more rugged clothing, specifically pants, um, than they ever had before due to how much physical activity that it required, but also how incredibly remote it was in comparison to a lot of other mining that had happened up to this point. Remember back to the last episode that it could take up to seven months to get something shipped from the East Coast to San Francisco. So if you broke your pants, you know, it might be a good half a year before you could get a new pair or, you know, that uh, anyone that was making pants would have to wait that long just to get new material in there to be able to sustain that level of output. So, like, roughly the same timetable it took to hem jeans at Union Made during those final years. <laughs> Y'all hemmed jeans at Union Made? And we didn't do it ourselves. We shipped them out, which is <laughs> with, with decreasing regularity. You shipped them to New York City, like, on a boat that went around Cape Horn. Literally four miles away, but I, I think they traveled around Cape Horn to to get those four miles. Something happened. Mm. But if you broke your pants in SF back then, you know, it might've taken even longer. The fabrics that were most preferred for these work pants were denim and duck canvas. Uh, and there were a lot of rapid innovations in the field because they were a lot of people just doing whatever they could to make do with the limited materials they had. Though as soon as anyone came up with a new pocket or stitching technique that was worthwhile, it was copied by everyone else who laid eyes upon it if it was something that was good. And one of these innovators was Jacob Davis, a tailor in Reno, Nevada, who came up with using copper rivets on the stress points of his pants pockets, which made them a whole lot stronger. And Jacob Davis, being the industrious person that he was, didn't want to get ripped off by all the other pant copiers uh, of the day. So he went into partnership with his fabric supplier, Levi Strauss of San Francisco, to patent riveting jeans. That is where we pick up our story. I wonder if Jacob Davis is, is bummed that Levi Strauss won that name more. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like, you don't see Jacob Davis. Oh, there was another brand that started a few years ago called Jacob Davis Jeans um, that I met in Barcelona at a denim show in like 2014. And I have not heard anything about them since. 
were they related in any way to Jacob Davis or were they just like, no, like none whatsoever. They just thought the name was cool and they thought that Jacob Davis needed his, uh, got a short shrift in that. It didn't work in 1870. It's interesting. They took another crack at it. Another thing that they took another crack at it was this is a uh, long story that Nick and I should probably tell the post modem of at some, uh, point, but there was a, uh, denim festival in Reno that was themed after Jacob Davis. Cause that's where he was from. Uh, when he came up with the like riveted pants thing called Blue Jeans Jam that was spelled not blue jeans like you would think, but blue G-E-N-E-S jam. Wait, what? <laughs> like like genetics? Yeah, like genetics. And they had like this thing of like, oh, we're going to get into the gene pool of how genes were made. I unfortunately did not make it to visit. Uh, but yeah, there was only the one jeans jam. Sounds so catchy. I wonder why. Yeah, but uh, yeah, blue jeans of the uh, actual pant variety, just a, a thing that they, they got their patent in May of 1873, and just a little background on patents, because this is something that will inform the rest of how this story develops. Don't know if you know this, Reed, but a patent is a license, usually granted by a government, that gives you exclusive rights to an invention or technique. Where else, who else could grant a patent? It says usually. I don't know. Like, like this was a, this is the dictionary definition that I found in most places. I guess they're just trying to do their like lawyer speak to cover all their bases of like, uh, heretofore in some such things that this is where, what is normally uh, done as patents. But like, I mean, I'd grant you a patent. I was just like wondering if it's like the government and also Metro PCS stores. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Like who who else is who else is here granting patents? The League of Nations. The League of Nations. <laughs> a a uh, Woodrow Wilson callback. Yeah, all, all you Wilson heads out there. But when you get a patent, it is only upheld in the country which issued the patent, which is important in how this story sort of turns around in copyright law for uh, Levi's in Japan in the like eighties and nineties. But we'll get into that much later. And it only lasts for a specific, a specific period of time before anyone else can use it. Um, you also have to go to the effort of proving the invention that you patented is new, and you have to defend your patent in court when other people try to copy you. So, uh, Reed, do you have any ideas for what kind of a uh, patent you might want to create? I'm going to, because my sister hasn't patented it, we'll steal it for the sake of this. We're going to do uh, a glue stick, but with butter in it. So you don't have to use a knife when you're spreading your butter. Very, very nice. Very nice. Does it have like a heating element in it to like make your butter sort of soft? I mean, theoretically, butter is shelf stable for like a specific like a period of time, so long as it's covered. And this this apparatus would cover the butter. Um, mm -hmm. So so long as you're not leaving it out for like I think a, whatever you know it it can't be left out for. Uh, that would be the way around it. Although you could just put it in the fridge, I guess, and see now, now we're talking because if you made it, made it like maybe metal, you could, you could heat it up in some hot water beforehand, as long as you made it mm, watertight. Slide your butter in. Yeah. You know, just the top part. And then you can just stick it back in the fridge. Now we're workshopping here. We're roll, we're cooking with gas. We're cooking with butter. Cooking with butter. So if that was truly unique and you were the first person to come up with that, you could get the patent. But if I make one after you get that patent, then, uh, you got to go to court and you've got to sue me for your butter uh, glue stick and pay for all those legal fees. And if you don't, 
that means that your butter glue stick is null and void, and I can make as many butter glue sticks as I want, and anyone can, because you did not go to the expense of defending it. It's an odd system. It is. It is a very odd system that benefits people that already have a lot of money, which is why Jacob Davis went to Levi Strauss, because he did not have the money to either get or defend his patent, or hire a lawyer you know, to prove that he was the first one to do it. So the patent that was granted was uh, specifically for, quote, improvement in uh, fastening pocket openings. And we've got uh, the text here for the uh, first pair of jeans as we know them. This is the this is the patent. Are you ready for this? Hit me. Jacob Davis of Reno, Nevada, a signer to himself and Levi Strauss and company of San Francisco, California. Improvement in fastening pocket openings. Specification forming part of letters patent number 139121 dated May 20th, 1873. Application filed August 9th, 1872. So it took him like almost a year to get this patent filed. To all whom at may be concern, be it known that I, Jacob W. Davis of Reno, County of Washoe and State of Nevada, have invented an improvement in fastening scams. And I do hereby declare... The following description of and accompanying drawing are sufficient to enable any person skilled in the art or science to which it most nearly appertains to make and use my said invention or improvement without further invention or experiment. I think instead of fastening scams, it was fastening seams, but just like the way that they scanned it and uploaded it onto Google Patents is uh, incorrect. But uh, continuing on, no fastening scams. My invention relates to a fastening for pocket openings whereby the sewed seams are prevented from ripping or starting from frequent pressure or strain thereon, and it consists in the employment of a metal rivet or eyelet at each edge of the pocket opening to prevent the ripping of the seam at those points. The rivet or eyelet is so fastened in the seam as to bind the two parts of cloth which the seam unites together so it shall prevent the strain or presser from coming upon the thread with which the seam is sewed. In order to more fully illustrate and explain my invention, reference is had to the accompanying drawing in which my invention is prevented as applied the pockets of a pair of pants. Figure one is a view of my invention as applied to pants. So figure one, I don't know if you got this open, but it is just this very uh, humble-looking minor wearing a very high-waisted pair of pants that is somewhat androgynous-looking, like resting on a little pick. kind of looks like Jane Lynch. It does look a little bit like Jane Lynch. It's got a nice, like, uh, they've got a nice bun going on the back of their hair, and they got a little, like, nice kerchief. And uh, very full-fit pants. This is a thing that if uh, Gerald were still with us, he would approve of these uh, these wide leg rings. Yeah, and that Cuban heel, too. He'd like yeah. all the stuff that's going on here. Very much. By, by the way, Gerald is is very much still with us. Uh, oh, he's, yeah, Gerald. He's just not on Heddles anymore. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to clear that up. I, I've seen Gerald recently. This it's an interesting look. It's not mm-hmm. like completely out of place. In it, it kind of it's like it's kind of like in our legacy, uh, like lookbook slide. Hmm. Yeah, these line drawings. You know, people don't draw like this anymore, and I really think it's for the shame. Yeah, but the the boots have a little bit more shape on the toe, which I don't think is a, a bad innovation. Those are some square toes. No, I, you think they're coming back? 
I think we'll I see square toes again. There's a couple things that I'm just like, can we leave? Like I'm all about cyclical, but like the square thing, it's just, it's man. I don't know. Calling it right now. Balenciaga square toed shoes within the next like eight months. Oh, I, I would, uh, not bet you on that. I feel like that's a good call. (laughs) Um, but I just hope that they look at those the same way, like the shoulder pad jacket goes over and people Mm -hmm. are just like, eh, cause I, I'm too short for shoulder pads. I feel like I don't want to, I really don't want to go there, but the square toe thing is somewhere as a sneaker person. It's just, that's a bridge too far. Swing and a miss. We'll see where it goes. But, uh, we just got a little bit more of this patent here. Oh, A, uh, in the figure here, A is the side seam in a pair of pants, drawers, or other article of wearing apparel. Love that, like, very, very vague language. A good lawyer that they had in 1872. Wearing apparel. wearing apparel. Which terminates at the pockets, and B represents the rivets at each edge of the pocket opening. The seams are usually ripped or started by the placing of the hands in the pockets and the consequent pressure or strain upon them. To strengthen this part, I employ a rivet, eyelet, or other equivalent metal stud. B, which I pass through a hole at the end of the seam so as to bind the two parts of cloth together and then head it down upon both sides as to firmly unite the two parts, which already have one head or used. It is only necessary to head the opposite end, and a washer can be interposed, if desired, in the usual way which uh, I, I don't know if we know the usual way here in 2020, but uh, the usual way of 1872, uh, we'll have to do more research on that. By this means, I avoid a large amount of trouble in mending portions of seams which are subjected to constant strain. I am aware that rivets have been used for securing seams in shoes as shown in the patents to GEO Houghton, number 6I, April 23, 1867, and to LK Washburn number one two three three one three, which I tried looking up that like rivet patent for boots and shoes, and I couldn't find that one. But I would love to see what uh, the boots and shoe rivet that uh, old Jacob Davis was able to rip off for riveting pants. Patent law doesn't seem like the most liveliest, like studying it, liveliest practice. It's in the history of inventions. I think there's some interesting things that you could probably discover and see, like who cribbed who. And what patents were necessary for each other one. So is here's a question for you. I was thinking there's a lot of trade secrets in that patent, right? Like it seems like he's he's sort of divulging methodology to to make sure that no one can rip him off. In the usual way. Yeah, do you think yeah, the usual way? Do you think that uh that exposes like, you know, ultimately exposes the person filing the patent to like people ripping it off down the road whenever it expires? Oh, absolutely. Just having a roadmap? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing of just like, once you get your patent, or at least once they got their patent, they were like, okay, they they got their patent for 17 years, and it was like, we've got from 1873 to 1890 to like run up the score as much as we possibly can on genes before everyone else can do this. Um, So like between 1873 and 1890, they were the only people that were legally allowed in the United States to put rivets on the pockets of pants. They also extended their patents that in 1874, they got a patent for riveting all other garments on things like denim work jackets and blossons and shirts and stuff like that. So if you wanted to put like rivets on cloth for clothing, you could not do that unless you were Levi's or Levi Strauss and Co. between 1873 and 1890. 
corner of the market right there. Very much. But uh, in getting your name and word out there in the 1870s was much more difficult than it was today when you could just, you know, pay uh, like a bunch of evil money on Facebook to spread everything around and make sure everyone sees that you have a patent. But back then they sort of had to do it uh, like on the product. So like they, they were very bullish about advertising their patent in every way that they could in 1870s, like spread the word uh, ability. Um, and they did this both like to advertise that their product was superior, but also to guard against people from stealing and copying their patent. Um, because like uh, if someone else saw it and wanted to imitate it, they had to know that there was a patent on it or else they would have to, you know, take those people to court. And, you know, the, the defense game is a lot harder on a patent than the offense game if you don't have a lot of money or you, like a lot of people are coming at you. So like the waste overhauls that they made literally had embossed on all the rivets patent May 1873 LS and co that it was like around the, like um, the flat part of the rivet on every single rivet that they did on like most of their pairs of pants. So if anyone saw this and they were like, Oh rivets, that's a great idea. Let me get a good look. They'd be like, Oh no, these are patented. I can't do that. Like a, a, a real, uh, a, a real barrier there. Let, let me get my microscope out to see if... Uh... But it also makes a good legal argument for a thing of just saying like, oh, like how people didn't know that these were patented. And it's like, nah, you, you look at the pants, you look at the rivets, these are patented. There is no way to like get around that. They also printed like their, their patents and the date on it on the pocket backs and eventually uh, the leather patch on the back of the jeans. And it's still something that's like all over every pair of jeans that Levi's sells. Just like you buy anything, they say like riveted 1873. This is you know over a hundred years after the patent has expired, but just sort of became a thing that they were known for. That's brand equity, I suppose. Lots of brand equity that uh, we will discuss more in just a little bit after we take a brief break here. Attention, blowout listeners. Stop by the Heddle Shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code BLOWOUT for a special listener discount. We are back, and we're here to talk not 1X, not three X's, but two X's. The double X jean. The original waist overall or jean that Levi sold was not called the 501. Not until the 1890s, but it was called XX or double X. Which was in reference to the source of their denim from the Amoskeag Mills in Manchester, New Hampshire. Which, if you will recall back to episode two, was one of the New England mill towns like we discussed then where, you know, everyone lived on the premises and uh, wove denim like all day and night by the bell. So it is not as uh, is popularly assumed a reference to Vin Diesel in Triple X. No, it was really a missed opportunity that they didn't call the Triple X sequel like four X's, like quadruple X. <laughs> Just four X, four furious. Yeah, and then 5X, you know, because, like, I don't know if the one with Ice Cube would have been called Quadruple X, and then the one where he came back, where Vin Diesel came back, would have been 
quintuple X. Well, that one was just called Tax Problems. Yeah. <laughs> I love the triple X movie so, so, so much. They're so ridiculous and incredible. Specifically the original one, because like I did my study abroad in Prague when I was in college, and uh, my roommate and I, like we went to every single filming location of Triple X because they shot it all in Prague. You did like a trip, like a Triple X movie tour. Yeah, you know everyone else is doing their like New Zealand Lord of the Rings like Hobbit tour. Yeah, the real heads know to do the Vin Diesel Triple X Prague tour. That has one of my favorite action movie tropes, which is a uh, uh, skiing or snowboarding sequence. Where there's just like assumed that the henchman for the supervillain is also an expert helicopter, like athlete, like skier or snowboarder, and mm-hmm. and the person also, it's just like like James Bond or Vin Diesel. It's like, oh yes, in my spare time that I clearly have so much of, I just rip. Well, that's what you get when you have an action sports star as your secret agent. It's triple X, baby. Apologies, we're talking about jeans, not triple X. But Double X uh, was the highest grade of denim that Amos Gag made, and Levi's wanted to advertise that they uh, that that is the denim that they were using, which is sort of like when denim brands today like list Nihon Menpu or Candiani or Cone or whatever that they source the fabric from. That was the same thing now be- or back then because uh, Amos Gag and Double X had a much higher profile than Levi Pants did themselves, um, and the surviving examples. Uh, show that the double X gene was very, very well made compared to things at the time. And a lot of this was due to Jacob Davis, who is the inventor, was now managing all the production in San Francisco, which would be sort of like, you know, if you're a guitar fan that like if Les Paul was overseeing every guitar made at Gibson, like Jacob Davis was there on the line, making sure that every pair of uh, Levi Strauss and Co jeans was made up to his standards. And also, like, a really great gig for Jacob Davis, the more that I've thought about it, because he was a guy that was, like, out on the prairie, like, repairing horse blankets and selling tobacco. And with because of this deal, he got to move to San Francisco and, uh, like, just have a workshop to make whatever improvements in pants that he could ever think of. And this is a guy that was an inventor before this as well. Really, like, had some room to spread his wings here. And there was, like, super high stitch count, and as Michael Allen Harris, who's, like, book jeans of the old west uh we are using heavily as reference material for this episode that it is required reading if this stuff interests you but uh michael allen harris probably the leading independent expert on this era of vintage denim says in the book like by the 1870s the production lines of levi strauss and co under the supervision of jacob davis were turning out work pants that were superior in every way to any that had ever been made or were ever made by other companies of the time so they were like constantly innovating with designs and construction techniques to iterate the highest quality product. This is things like in the 1870s, there were five different designs that they worked through to make the back cinch on the back of the jeans like more secure, eventually riveting um, them in place because, again, they were the only people that were legally allowed to rivet them. Uh, and the quality and craftsmanship of what they were producing was much, much higher including having like straighter stitches and a higher stitch per inch count so the seams were less likely to bust. Oh, and they also put a uh, crotch rivet on the fly, uh, which were the only people to do that. So if you ever come across a pair of Levi or a pair of jeans from the like 1870s or 80s that has that crotch rivet, they were probably Levi's or just any rivets because, you know, they were the only ones legally allowed to do it. 
Otherwise, they're contraband genes, and you should uh, report them to the local authorities. Yes, you need to go back immediately. See something, say something. It's like an airport. San Francisco Township uh, Municipal Authority and sick a posse on them. Yeah, talk to the vigilance committee. They'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll handle it fairly, I'm sure. Throughout all this iterating is how we got Levi's trademark design features, sort of like the gullwing arcuit stitch on the back pocket. As like a lot of other brands at the time were also using decorative stitching on the back pocket to identify themselves. And the uh, two horses pulling apart a pair of pants ad, which... Very interesting historical tidbit about the uh, two horses uh, label that one of the first instances that you see that is on a big advertisement like banner that racistly enough refers to Levi's as the only kind made by white labor quote. I I thought this type of stuff had been deleted from Levi's history. Nope. This is the kind of stuff that you get from a guy like Michael Allen Harris because he's independent and like will put this stuff in his book. That is unreal. This big banner that like has in big letters like right below it, the only kind made by white labor, which I guess was a selling point in the 1870s. Uh, Harris surmises that this was developed uh, sometime after the San Francisco Chinatown riots of 1877 because before then, Levi Strauss and Co. listed quite a few Chinese people on the payroll, but then switched to only white workers afterwards, which just wow. Uh, that is a uh, historical footnote that, um, yeah, you can see why Levi's might have wanted to bury the hell out of that. Turns out Big Denim should not be allowed to write their own history. <laughs> no. Remember like last episode where like, we think that Levi Strauss was an upstanding guy, but like, Levi's the company is the one that controls all the messaging on him. So we don't really know. Here is a, uh, a little insight into that. Because Levi's had a lock on the patent, uh, other companies had to figure out other ways to secure pockets to pants in order to be able to compete with them. So I've got some info on a few of these uh, cadre of other denim brands and the types of fasteners that they used in order to keep the pants... Uh, from falling down, if you would. There is a Greenbaum Brothers, which applied for a patent to put little leather triangles in place of rivets on pockets. So they would have just these little like triangles with like the points facing down that they would just stitch like over and over and over on the top of the corners of the pockets. Just like a little leather chime. Yeah, a little leather chime, you know, like a little thing you could just like, you know, rub at it. I can see how it might be nice for some uh, folks today. If you put on some, you know, veg tanned, uh, undyed leather on there, you could get a nice patina gang going. And some, I uh, feel like where rivets are though, it's not going to be like what you got to do to earn the patina. Like what gets that patina is not the best. Yeah, like you're, dealing, like, you're dealing with, uh, yeah, you're probably like not the best patina causing body, <laughs> body fluids. Mm-hmm. That yeah, leather, yeah, that leather crotch rivet. This is why all these cra- uh, leather, or uh, not leather uh, crotch rivets, the copper ones on Levi's like all oxidize out. Like it makes you wonder <laughs> what what chemicals or what bodily fluids they were exposed to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't feel but, like the leather triangles will work very well though. It's still, it, you're still re- relying on uh, on materials that wear down. Yeah. Apparently the Greenbaum brothers ones were cheaper though. And the quality wasn't as high. Um, but they were, uh, Levi's were the most expensive. 
And uh, another one was uh, Neustadter Brothers. I think I'm pronouncing that right. N-E-U-S-T-A-D-T-E-R. And uh, because their name was so difficult to pronounce, I'm assuming, they called their brand Boss of the Road, which is an awesome name. It sounds like they. It sounds like it was started in 2011, in like an Oakland in like an Oakland workshop. We don't like to use the term boss. It's more like coworker of the road. Yeah, the boss of the road uh, stitched an extra layer of fabric inside the pocket tops on their pants, and made a bunch of triangular just stitches on the edges without the leather uh, little triangles. And they had this floral, like almost pot leaf like stitch in the middle, which would add reinforcement to that like piece of material that was on the inside of the pocket they look pretty cool they look sort of like hippie pants that you'll see like some of these old examples that just have like big old pot leaf designs stitched around the pockets Newstatter brothers and boss of the road they also patented a crotch reinforcement gusset and the one piece fly if you were a real big uh, old denim head yeah you'll know about the one piece fly which uh, is supposedly much stronger and like prevents you know, when you unbutton the, the fly of your pants, like all the stress happens at the bottom, um, which Levi's used a rivet, like crotch rivet, where like they had this one piece. So since there wasn't a seam, it was less likely to burst. Is there a one piece like just camp, like people who are trying to bring this back? Yeah, there are a few people that do that, although it's like a lot harder to stitch. Um, but yeah, uh, Morrison and his brand Endrime that we had on, you know, a, a couple months ago, Big proponent of the one piece fly. I think I need to see it in action. I'm not so I'm not sold on the uh, the audio. You know. Uh, yeah, I'll send you I'll send you a pic. We'll we'll post some uh, some images of all this. Yeah, stuff. show notes. Then there was uh, Samuel Krauss and Co. He stitched an extra layer of fabric, not on the inside but the outside of pocket tops. I don't hate that. No, it's, you know you got to do one thing or the other. It's like it was sort of like everyone was calling dibs on everything that you could do with this. And just like some people got the short straws. Like um, there's another brand, uh, AB Effelt and co. They just sort of said like, fuck it. And they put rivets on their jeans. And then they were immediately sued by Levi Strauss and co. And theirs are probably like the funniest things that they just decided to make the corners of their pockets really, really tall. So they just said, fuck it a second time. They're just like, yeah, fuck it. See if this works. So like the, the pockets on their pants, it's just like, the, instead of being like flat across the top, it just like curves up and goes up for like an inch. And they stitched over that a bunch of times. So they look like these weird, like Dr. Zeusian, like Grinch pants that have these like weird Eldritch pockets on them. In the innovation fantasy draft, they're just like, how did we get stuck with big pockets? Yeah. Well, they aren't even big pockets. They're just, they just have really long, like extended things on the top. So they're just hard to access is, is sort of what you're saying. Yeah, well, it just has this like U-shaped where it's like very skinny. It's just like, you know where the rivets are on like a watch pocket on a pair of pants? It's like you just took material and like went straight up from each of those rivets, but it's only like, you know, a quarter inch wide. And you went (laughs) up for like another inch and then stitched over that. Again, fuck it. Let's see if it works. So it wouldn't rip off. We'll slap Um, slap something on it being like, this will last for a lifetime and hope it holds. (laughs) People don't live very long back like yeah. in these days. It'll last for a lifetime. We didn't say whose lifetime. We sell these to miners. Three years in San Francisco. Uh, then uh, there's another one, uh, B&O Greenbaum, which were likely distant relatives of the Greenbaum brothers of the Little Leather Triangles uh, family. 
and they just sandwiched a bunch of layers of fabric together in hopes they would not tear. They like made a welt pocket by just like stitching stuff on top of itself over and over again. So they do like a patch pocket and then they would put like another patch like on the top of the pocket. So you had to go like up and under in order to access the pocket. It's like, it's like the, uh, the wall they were talking about putting up in front of New York to prevent the water rising during global warming. Like, I don't know if we put enough there, maybe, maybe this will work. Yeah. But it's just to take, uh, to keep your, your, uh, gold nuggets, uh, ideally enough from ripping your pants pockets off. Yeah. it's see, I, I understand why Levi's won this battle. Needless to say, everyone was dreaming up some separate way to reinforce pants in the absence of rivets. While Levi's was also just trying to shore up as many other innovations as they could to win market dominance before the patent ran out in 1890. But uh, the patent did run out, and very quickly, uh, everyone gave up their like leather triangles and tall corners and just started to make riveted jeans that directly competed with Levi's. Do you remember when Domino's were like, our pizzas sucked before and we've made them good now? <laughs> and as, <laughs> I do remember And this. as a Domino's customer, I was like, but I like Domino's. Like, and I, oh. and I was, I was like, man, like, I was like, does that say more about me or does that say more about Domino? Can you imagine buying yourself like a pair of like B and O green bombs in 1898 or 1888 and being like, you know, they told me this was better and I'm going to take their word for it. You start telling everyone around being like, yo guys, like your rivets are terrible. You got to do with the fabric stacking. And then, you know, right <laughs> then they're just like, yeah, no, that fabric shit we did was terrible. We were full of shit. Uh, yeah, it was just illegal for us to do this. <laughs> so, so anyone who bought our jeans last year, y'all got had. I apologize, but trust us now. Yeah, <laughs> now we're going to give you the good shit. But yeah, now that uh, post-1890, any and all other denim brands could come in and make their own riveted jeans, which is a thing that we will get into next time as the history of denim continues with part five on regional denim expansion that uh, we will get into uh your names like lee and wrangler bluebell and stronghold and a bunch of other ones to see how uh denim went nationwide uh or je- denim jeans like this went nationwide outside of just the regional like gold mining pants that they were in the late 1800s thank you so much uh for joining us again my name is david i'm reed and we are heddles blowout catch you uh, next week